Well, it is great to see all of you here, and I really mean that because yesterday at 8 o'clock in the morning, I wasn't sure we were even going to be able to have church this weekend. I was over here at the church at 8 o'clock on Saturday morning, and there was this much ice over everything in our parking lot. You could ice skate on it, and I thought, oh man, I don't know how this is going to work out. But let me tell you, we had some guys show up here at the church, and for hours, they broke up all the ice over every sidewalk. We had, a, we had a come to come and scrape our lot, and by 5 o'clock last night, it was clear as a bell. And these guys in this picture behind me, I want you to give them a round of applause, all right? You are here today because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, but you are physically here today because of these guys right here, all right? And so if you see any of them in this picture out in the hallways, you make sure you let them know how thankful you are. They spent a lot of time up here making our sidewalk safe, and that was a job, let me tell you. So, hey, got your Bibles? Please open to Genesis chapter 32, please. Genesis chapter 32, there's Bibles um, in the seat pockets in front of you, or if you like the electronic stuff, you can look it up on, on different apps. You can even go to our New Life app. We have a Bible in there as well. But however you get there, please get to Genesis chapter 32. And of course, always, it'll be on the screen behind me as well. Um, but we're going to be there in that chapter today. And if this is your very first time joining us, or it's been a while since you've been with us, let me just tell you, we have been in a series called Origins, which is a chapter-by-chapter -chapter study through the book of Genesis. Genesis is the very first book in the Bible, and it is so foundational to what we believe as Christians. In fact, I've, I've said this many times, you've heard me say if you've been around for a while, that without the book of Genesis, I don't think we would really understand how the whole Bible comes together. I don't know if we'd really understand what it means to be a Christian. Christian today without the book of Genesis. So much of what we believe directly and indirectly comes from the book of Genesis. It is the story of our beginnings. It is our heritage. It's our origin story. And let me tell you, knowing where you came from says so much about where you are going. And that couldn't be more true when it comes to our faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I've challenged our church family over these last few months to be reading the book of Genesis in its entirety. And I'd like to encourage you, if this is your first time with us or just joining us after a while, to to do the same thing, to be reading the book of Genesis and come with us on this journey that we are on together. And if you're really ambitious and maybe God lights a little fire underneath you today, you can even go back and listen to some of the old sermons and get caught up and really be a part with us of what we're doing. I know those sermons are on our website. They're on our app, they're on Facebook, they're on YouTube, they're on Vimeo, they're on Spotify, and I'm sure I'm missing some things, but they're everywhere. And, and if you can't find them, call the church office, we will help you find them, because we want you to be a part of what God is doing here. And I hope that you'll be reading Genesis, and, and God lights that fire under you for his word. Now, these past few weeks, where we are in the story of what's happening in Genesis is we're tracking with Jacob. And Jacob is the grandson of Abraham. And last week, we, where we left Jacob, he's on this front edge of a turning point. He hasn't always been following the Lord. His life doesn't look like a life of obedience to God. But there's a part of his life right now that is beginning to just kind of turn around. We, we've tracked with him now for over 20 years. He's worked for his father-in-law. But, but that situation is kind of soured. And at the same time, God comes to Jacob and he says, Jacob, I am with you and now it's time for you to go home. Now this wasn't God reinserting himself back into Jacob's life after you know, 20 years of silence. This is God reminding Jacob, I never checked out of your story. I've been here the whole time. You haven't been looking at me, but Jacob, I've been looking at you. And for me, that's a very comforting truth about our heavenly father, isn't it? 
that we can spend a whole lifetime unaware and don't care a thing about God, but God has spent his entire existence keeping an eye on each and every one of us, that God does not check out on us. And we may check out on him, but he doesn't check out on us. And Jacob is a great reminder of that reality. So God tells him, Jacob, it's time for you to go home, which I don't know if that was bad news for Jacob. If you were with us in our study, six years earlier, he wanted to go home. And Laban talked him into working for him some more. But he wanted to go home. And so now in Genesis um, 32, God says, go home. And, and Jacob is glad to do it. But there's this one little problem hanging over Jacob's head. And do you remember what that little problem is? His brother wants to kill him. Now, okay, that's the, that's the little problem. You know, it, we're thrilled that Jacob is turning over a new leaf. And for the first time in his life, he's actually obeying God, which is a new development. But going home, obeying God means he has to interact with his brother. His brother Esau wants him dead. Now, again, if this is your first time with us or you, or you haven't stayed up with this series every week, but you might remember, why, why does Esau want Jacob dead? Well, because Jacob swindled him out of his birthright, and then he deceived his father into giving him the blessing instead of his brother Esau, and Esau's like, you're gonna die. And not like, you know, one brother saying to another brother, because every brother is the oldest brother, I'm gonna kill you. No, 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 nothing like that. He really means it. And so Jacob runs away under the guise of, I'm gonna go find a wife in a different country, but he goes away and he's gone for 20 years. And so now God says, Jacob, go home. And Jacob's like, okay, and I got to confront my brother. Now, this is not the same kind of age that we live in. It's not like, you know, Jacob could give him a call or he could text his brother. Hey, Esau, are you still mad at me? Are you still holding a grudge? Happy face, happy face, you know, question mark, you know. He can't do that. The only way that he can figure this out is to go home. And that's an interesting question. How long can somebody hold a grudge? I mean, that's a good question, isn't it? How long can you actually hold a grudge? Now, forget for a second all the health implications. Every study in the world they've ever done on anger and bitterness, it all comes out the same way. You know, it's detrimental to your health to be bitter for very long and to hold a grudge. Besides that, how long can somebody hold a grudge? Well, I guess it depends on who you ask. I guess everybody would have a different opinion. If you ask somebody who has the last name of Hatfield or McCoy, they, they, they might have some ideas about how long somebody can hold a grudge. And maybe somebody like Catfield or McCoy, I didn't see the movie. What, um, here's another example. I wonder if Tanya Harding or Nancy Kerrigan has insight into how long somebody can hold a grudge. I, I shouldn't tell you this, but that's never stopped me. Um, I, I overheard some people talking the other day about how the Winter Olympics, nobody's watching it. You guys notice that? It's like, we're complete, I mean, our society seems completely uninterested. And I overheard them talking, and I have to confess, I need forgiveness for thinking this. And they said, I don't know why nobody's watching the Olympics. And I thought to myself, it's because nobody's had their knee bashed in in a while. <laughs> some of you are tracking with me. There's no car, there's nothing exciting happening with it. Somebody, some jealous skater knocks some other girl on her rear end. That will get people watching, let me tell you. I told you I shouldn't have said it. <laughs> Forgive me. Now last night, Saturday night, they roared at that. They thought that was funny. They said, let's just go home now. <laughs> How long can somebody hold a grudge? I don't know. I wonder if a guy named Kenny Davis would have any insight into that. Who is Kenny Davis, you might be wondering? Kenny Davis was the captain of the men's 
basketball team that went to the Olympics in 1972. It was an incredible game. For the gold medal, the Americans were playing the Russians. And um, to this day, the final three seconds of that game is considered the most controversial ending to any game that's ever been played in the history of mankind. Now, I'll spare you some of the details because you can look them up on your own. But really, with three seconds left, the Americans were winning by one point and it looked like the Americans were gonna win. The clock runs out. The Americans celebrate. Yeah, 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 we did it. And they're like, no, 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 the Russians protested. We called a timeout and they got a timeout. Not only that, but they got more time put on the clock and, they, and hist- historians have gone back and looked at this and said this should have never happened. But some dude walked out of the stands and he went up to the clock keeper and he goes, they need more time. And the clock keeper's like, okay. And they played it again. Clock runs out. The Americans win. Everybody celebrates for the second time. And, and the Russians like, no, 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 not fair. There was a clock malfunction. And so they got a third opportunity. And if you know your sports history, um, what happened next is one of the most iconic moments in sports history. The Russians inbound the ball. They throw it the whole length of the court. Um, there was a player uh, by the name of Alexandri Belov, and he catches the ball as our defender falls to the ground. Easy layup, and the Russians win the gold. Three opportunities to play. Three seconds of basketball. This should have never happened to begin with. And the Americans like, that's not fair. And even to this day, I'm telling you the story and I'm kind of going, that's not fair. You know? And so they protest immediately. The Olympic Oversight Committee, whoever oversees this said, nope, Russians win. Sorry, Americans get silver. And, 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 and it was like, this is wrong. If you know the story, uh, when it came time for the medal ceremony, This was the year the Americans didn't show up. Do you remember? In protest, they said, you keep your medal. We don't want the dumb silver medal. We're not even coming. And to this day, nearly 50 years later, not one American from that team has ever received the silver medal. And uh, now that it is the 50th anniversary of this team, I've been reading about they want to do some kind of celebration because this was a great team. And they, they want to celebrate it. And they're actually trying to find the original silver medals that have been lost to time. Nobody knows where they are. But it's estimated if they can find uh, that box full of silver medals, wherever that is, in somebody's basement or pawn shop or wherever, that, that those medals today, because of their historical value, could be worth up to $75,000 a piece. So they're trying to find them. <laughs> Here's what I found interesting as I was looking into this a little. The Olympic rules state that if even one member of the team refuses their medal, then nobody gets them. It has to be unanimous or nobody gets them. And there's been a few, it's been rumored over the years that a few of the members of the team have kind of reluctantly said, you know, I'd take the silver medal if they were still giving them out. But that's why I bring up Kenny Davis. How long can somebody hold a grudge? Well, catch this. The team captain, Kenny Davis, he knows the rules that it has to be accepted unanimously. And so he actually has it written in his will for his family to never, under any circumstance, ever accept the silver medal for the 1972 Olympic basketball game. He has it written in his will. So what this means is that the rest of the team will never get one, not even over his dead body. Will they ever get? How long can somebody Hold a grudge. Well, 
No doubt that is a question that is hanging over Jacob as he has loaded up his whole family and he is headed for home. You know he's thinking about that. Is Esau still holding on to his anger? Now, now check out what happens. You got chapter 32 open on your lap. Let's look at verse three. We're gonna start there. Jacob sent messengers ahead, of his, ahead to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, and he instructed them, this is what you are to say to my Lord Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, male and female servants. Now I am sending this message to my Lord that you may find favor in your eyes. And when the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you with 400 men with him. <laughs> I don't think that's the news that Jacob was looking for. I, I don't think that's what he, it's almost like these guys come back and like, who's gonna tell Jacob? I'm not gonna tell Jacob, you better tell Jacob. All right, what happened? We saw your brother. He's exactly like you described. And we told him exactly what you wanted us to say, that your servant Jacob is coming. And now he's gonna come out and see you. Oh, this is wonderful. Oh, well, he's got 400 men with him. Now, I'm telling you, I don't know what, what you would be thinking. I can tell you exactly what I would be thinking. I would be thinking, I'm dead meat. Uh, I mean, okay, that answers the question. He's still holding a grudge, and now he knows exactly where I am. He knows exactly where I'm gonna be. I can't flee. He's gonna come out here, and he's gonna finish what he wanted to do. In the very next verse in the Bible, it says that Jacob was terrified. He was absolutely afraid. Now, now this is one of those places in the Bible we could easily take a step back and go, why would Jacob be afraid? This is what all these years, 4,000 years of distance can allow us to say, what are you so afraid for, Jacob? God told you to go home. Why don't you just go home and trust him? Oh, it's really easy for us to say that today. But in the moment, and I think we all know this, trust in God and fear of the unknown don't always match up, do they? I think this is Jacob. He's like, I think he's terrified. And yes, he's trying to turn over a new leaf. He's trying to obey God and trust him. But I think there's still some of that old Jacob that's like, ah, oh, I don't know what's gonna happen here. I love what Warren Wearsby says about Jacob in this exact moment. He says this, Jacob forgot that God's commandment always involves God's enablement. For the will of God will never lead us where the power of God can't protect us and provide for us. I think he's on to something, don't you? How often have we forged ahead without we're walking in obedience and then fear comes along and then all of a sudden we forget that God's with us. And we forget that God's power, if he calls you, will enable you. If he opens the door, he'll help you walk through it. All of these things. Jacob seems to have momentarily forgotten this and he's, he's terrified. Um, it makes you wonder what Esau was really thinking. Of course, this is all speculation. I wasn't there, of course, neither were you. But when these messengers came to him and the first words out of their mouths were, your servant Jacob. You know, you know Esau somewhere is like, uh, my servant Jacob, really? Really? Is that what he's calling himself now? My servant Jacob, now that's really funny. He's calling him, that's not Jacob. Are you sure you're with my brother Jacob? Because my brother Jacob would never call himself a servant. You know, last week, again, we talked about Jacob's turning point. He's, you know, for the first time in his life, he's talking about what God has done. For the first time in his life, he's talking about how God has provided. And it does feel like in the text that Jacob's starting to 
turn the corner a little bit with his walk with God. Um, and maybe, I don't know, this is speculation. Um, maybe Jacob wants to see himself that way. That might not be completely his reality, but you know, you ever read the Bible and you go, I want to be like that. I, I want my life to reflect that. And you know you're not that right now. There, there's stuff that's keeping you from being that. And maybe there's a little bit of that in Jacob. That's, I want to be a servant. I want to be this, but Esau, I don't think on day one here is buying this. Oh, he can't just change his label. Can't just change his identity like that. He can't do to me what he's done and then all of a sudden expect me to accept that now he's a humble servant. Just think back over the last couple of weeks we've been tracking with Jacob. Has the word servant come out of any of our mouths? No, we've labeled him some pretty harsh things, haven't we? I know myself in these sermons have called him a con artist. You've heard me say that. Um, we've called him a manipulator. Uh, we've called him a cheat. Um, we, we've, we've called him a blackmailer. And we've called him a deceiver. I can tell you, this is the first time that we've used the word servant and Jacob together. And it's his label. It's his identifier of himself. And I think Esau, first stab at it, is like, you can't just change like that. You can't change your label. Labels are hard to shake. And we live in a society that's fascinated with labels. We label everything, don't we? And when I say label, I mean we stereotype people. And, 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 and something, we associate an idea or a name or something with somebody, we do it all the time. It's almost human nature to label people. And I'll give you a few examples of how our, our society labels people. Um, if you like guns and you like to collect guns and you like to shoot guns and you like to carry guns, not, it doesn't apply to Arkansas because nobody around here likes that. <laughs> but there is a portion of our society that looks to gun lovers and they would stereotype them this way. Those are just a bunch of right-wing conservatives. So we label. I'll give you an example from the sports world. If you are seeing a guy on TV who's a 38-year-old injured quarterback, we would call him what? Washed up, past his prime. Unless your name's Tom Brady and nothing makes sense about that guy. <laughs> if you can come out and you can make the play at just the right time, what are they gonna call you? You are clutch. That's the label. You are a clutch player. If you are very young, no doubt somebody's gonna say, you're just naive. That's the label. If you're too old, somebody might say they're out of touch. Because we stereotype, we label things. If you follow the rules, then you are holier than thou, or you are a goody tissue. If you uh, are, go against the rules, then you are a rebel. You are a nonconformist. We stereotype all kinds of things in life. And, and I'm just gonna go out here on a limb. It's not really a long limb. Every single one of us has been labeled something in our life. And you know how hard it is to shake those labels. You know, the Bible does this too. Probably one of the most famous labels we ever see in the Bible is from one of Jesus' disciples. His name was Thomas. And, and Thomas wasn't with the other disciples when they saw the resurrected Lord. And, and after Jesus left, Thomas shows up and all the disciples are like, we saw Jesus. And he goes, no, nah, I don't believe you. And it's not until I see him with my own eyes. And forever he has been labeled doubting Thomas. There's not a person in this room that would ever want to be called a doubting Thomas. You know, labels can be positive, labels can be negative, but I'll tell you, once you get labeled, they tend to stick and they are hard to shake. 
So Jacob just calling himself a servant, it doesn't just mean that he is because it's really hard to change labels that you have definitely earned in your life. And Jacob has certainly earned the labels that he has been assigned to him. You know, I told you a few weeks ago that I don't feel sorry for Jacob. Remember me saying that? I've analyzed that a little bit more. And as I get to this part of the Bible, I do think I feel sorry for him this much. Not this much, this much. And this is where I feel sorry for Jacob a little bit. He has been labeled since the day he was born. Now think about this. Remember when the day he was born, um, um, uh, Jacob came out of his mother's womb grasping his brother Esau's heel. Do you remember that? And so they named him Jacob, which means heel grabber or one who grasps the heel. That was his label. And, and you know, because of Jacob's life, um, the word Jacob, or if you were to say heel grabber or whatever, it became over time a Hebrew idiom for somebody who is a schemer or a deceiver. Now, like I said, he did plenty of things on his own to earn these labels into adulthood, but this is a guy that has been labeled since he was really young. And even Esau points this out. You might recall after Jacob did to him all these bad things, Esau said in in chapter 27, verse 36, isn't he rightly named Jacob? I mean, didn't our parents get it right by calling him Jacob, the heel grabber? The, the shrewd man, the undercutter, the deceiver. Esau's like, he, he earns his name. So even from just a li- little boy, little baby, he's been labeled and, well, he gathers his family and he heads for home and he's terrified of his brother. Somewhere along that journey though, as he's heading home, it's a, it's a long journey, it takes a long time. Somewhere though, along the journey, He does what I think every single one of us should do when we're afraid, and he prays. And this is considered, many people have looked at Jacob's prayer here, and they've said, this is the greatest prayer in the Old Testament. Many people say that. Here's what he prays. Look at at verse nine. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I become two camps. I can't say this for sure, but it's almost like in this prayer, he's trying to say, now God, I'm a changed man, aren't I? I am a changed person. I'm not the same guy I was 20 years ago going back I mean, he's heading home and he's afraid, but he's like, God, I'm not the same guy, am I? Look at the next verse, verse 11. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me and also my, the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted, which is exactly the promise that God gave to Abraham and Isaac and to Jacob. There's two things about this prayer that are really powerful, if you ask me. The first one is he's praying on God's promises more than his desires, really. He's, he's talking about the promises of God. God, you, you have said these things, and, and he's struggling, I think, to really, I believe these are going to come true. You said they were. And then what else makes this prayer powerful? He's praying with great humility. 
He's saying, God, it's your kindness and it's your faithfulness. It's, it's kind of the same kind of prayer when we realize later in life all the ways that God has protected you through your journey. You say, at any one of these points, I shouldn't be alive. At any one of these points, I could have gone the other way. All this stuff. And then you say, but God, your kindness and your faithfulness has protected me. He's taking an inventory. Now, I think this is why it makes this prayer so powerful. He prays on God's promise. He prays in great humility. And friends, that should be the foundational pieces of our prayer life too. I'm gonna, cl- I'm, gonna, I'm gonna pray on the promises of God. And what are those promises? That God's never gonna leave me nor forsake me. That God cares for me. That he knows what I need before I even ask. That, that heaven is waiting. And, and do you pray on God's promises? Lord, you have said in your word, dot, dot, dot. Oh, and Lord, I'm so thankful for what you've done in my life. It's because of you. Something very powerful in this prayer. Now, Jacob prays this prayer. And like I said, I'm gonna keep reminding you, he's on the front edge of a turning point. It doesn't mean that he's completely turned. And just because you're a follower of the Lord doesn't mean that you don't want to, at times, revert back to your old ways. And I think what happens next is a little bit of Jacob saying, yes, Lord, I know you, you made these promises, but now I'm gonna take matters into my own hands. Now, he doesn't say that, but what happens next makes us think that. So this is what he does. He, he's, he's gonna kind of go back and say, okay, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna figure out how to make Esau like me again. That's what I'm gonna do. And look at verse 13. Here's what he does. He spent the night there and from what he had, he had selected a gift for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ooze and 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. Have you ever gotten a gift like that before? If somebody gave me a gift like that, I know my neighbors would turn me into the POA. I, there's no way that's gonna fly or whoever they would turn me into. This just shows you a little bit of Jacob's wealth. This was just a gift for his brother. And here's what happens next, verse 16. He put them in the care of his servants, each herd by itself, and he said to his servants, go ahead of me and keep some space between the herds. And he instructed the one in the lead, when my brother Esau meets you and asks, who do you belong to? Where are you going? And who owns all these animals? Then you are to say this. They belong to your servant, Jacob. There's that word again. They belong to your servant, Jacob. They are a gift sent to my Lord Esau, and he is coming up behind us. Do you understand what's happening? Jacob's going home. Esau's coming out to meet him. They're getting closer and closer. He's getting terrified. And then he gives them all these animals and he splits them up into groups and he lines them up. He puts some distance between them. And so here's what's gonna happen. As we get closer, Esau is gonna get gift after gift after gift after gift after gift until they're like right on top of each other. And every time he gets a gift, he's gonna say, be told, your servant Jacob, your servant Jacob, your servant Jacob. I don't know how this sounds to you, but to me, it sounds like a bribe, all right? That sounds like a bribe to me. And maybe, and again, I have to speculate on some of these things. We don't get to read their minds. But to me, it might even reinforce Jacob's label as a schemer, a manipulator. And maybe Esau's like, I'm not gonna fall for this. He suckered me with a bowl of soup one time. He's not gonna sucker me with all of these animals. I think Esau could have been like, Jacob's a deceiver. And some things don't ever change. The reality of the situation as I see it 
is this is the part of this story where Jacob is still trying to get things done on his own terms. I do A and B and C, then the outcome will be this. Instead of what he should have done is just say, God, you told me to go home. I'm starting to trust you again. I'm starting to trust you. I believe you. And you wouldn't send me there to die, I don't think, because you made these promises to make this mighty nation out of my family. I'm just gonna trust you with it. That's what he should have done, but that's not what he does. But we do the same thing, don't we? There are times when we know we just gotta trust God in this. This is in God's hands and we're just gonna obey. We're walking with him and this is what we believe is what he wants. And so we're just gonna trust him with the outcome of these things or I'm gonna proceed forward in full obedience to God and I know God wants me to be honest. I know God wants me to act in integrity. I know God wants me to live my life with holiness and if I do those things, God will handle the rest. But we struggle with taking matters in our own hands and we look for ways to get our things accomplished that may be leaving God out of it. And I think there's a little bit of that happening here. I said that Jacob is having a turning point. I never said he arrived and he will folly and he makes him a lot like us, doesn't it? Look at verse 22. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives. So in other words, the context here is Esau and Jacob are almost right on top. Like their meeting is imminent. So he takes his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons. They crossed the ford of the Jabbok. And after he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all the, his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. Now that's interesting. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. And then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. And then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? And then he blessed him there. So Jacob called that the place Peniel, saying it is because I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. This is one of the most fascinating encounters you're gonna read in the Bible that anybody ever has with God. It really is. I, I mean, it says that Jacob wrestled with a man and then it says he struggled with God. And what we can deduce from this is simply this. Bottom line, the Lord came and wrestled with Jacob. They had a full-on MMA match right there out in the wilderness. And, and the Bible would lead us to think that it was a draw but it wasn't a draw, was it? Because we know God could just snap Jacob's neck like that if he wanted to. I've really wrestled with this text. Like, what is going on here? And I'm just gonna tell you what I think. Um, I believe this is God making a point with Jacob. I believe that the point of this wrestling match was God breaking Jacob down. He's turning, he's not there yet. There's some things that 
have got to be true in Jacob's life before he meets with his brother and before he can go on and become what God desired for his life. And I think this is what God is breaking him down. I think God is breaking down his label. I think God is breaking down his, I'm going to do it my way attitude. I think God is breaking down Jacob's scheming and all the things that he's done in his life, all of his past sins. And when they finally get that wrestled down, I believe that's when God was willing to change his label. All night long, Jacob refuses to surrender. This thing goes on all night long. He defended himself. And, and finally, the man, which was God, he, he, I think for all sense of, I think he broke Jacob's hips, or his hip. He wrenched it. And I think there's evidence in the Bible that he limped for the rest of his life because of this. He disabled him. And he forced him to surrender who, who he was. And, and it kind of reminds me of, um, of, of, or, of Paul in the New Testament. You, you may not recall this, but I'm going to tell you it. There was a time that Paul, you don't realize this, he was dealing with a major affliction in his life. He called it a thorn in his flesh. Does that come back to you? And, the, and he says that three times I cried out to God to, to remove this thorn from me. And what did God say each time? My grace is sufficient for you. You're fine, Paul. I believe Paul, uh, Paul is being made to be humble. I don't want you to be conceited. I don't want you to get arrogant. And God gave me this thorn in the flesh as a reminder that I need God. I think Jacob, every time he walked out to his field after this and he's limping out there, it's a reminder of his need for God and the night that he wrestled with God and that he needs God's help in life and, and that there was a, a time in his life that he finally had to fully surrender to God so here was at daybreak, they've been wrestling all night and now Jacob has got a hurt hip and he's in this weakened, weakened position and, and what's God say to him? What is your name? All of this was leading to this admission. What is your name? And he says, Jacob. Do you know what he's really saying? It's deceiver, it's undercutter. That's my name, that's who I am. I'm a sinner, I'm a loser. All these things have not been for you. What's your name? My name is that. My name is is Jacob. And he finally surrenders that to God. And God says, okay, but not anymore. That's not going to be your name anymore. Your name is going to be Israel. I'm going to give you a brand new name. And it's going to be the name that God's people are going to be known by from this point out. The Israelites. You're going to be Israel. Your label is going to change. You called yourself a servant before, but that didn't change your label. But your brokenness before me, I can change your label. I I think about that for us. There comes a point in every, every single one of our lives who has professed Christ as Lord. This moment happens for us. We've done it our own way enough. We, we've been scheming and we've been living life by our own decisions and, and God is wrestling me down to surrender. Who are you? I'm a sinner and I'm in need of a savior. That's who I am. And the Lord's like, now, now you are saved and you are a believer. You are a Christ follower. I'm gonna change your identity. And the New Testament speaks about this very thing. Galatians 2.20, what does Paul say to the church? He said, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. It's the same struggle that we're talking. It's the same wrestling match. The life I live, I live in the body. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself 
for me. And I wonder if there's anybody in this room today who is wrestling with God right now and you don't know that you're even wrestling with him. Wrestling over who's gonna be the leader of your life. Wrestling over who's gonna be in the number one position. Who is gonna be priority in your life. Wrestling with him over your own labels. The ones that you have earned and the ones that you hate. I wonder if there's any wrestling going on with God. Because it wasn't until Jacob confessed who he was. I'm a deceiver. I'm a schemer. I am Jacob. It wasn't until that moment that God gave him a new label. No, no, no. You're going to be Israel. Israel. Where do you need to wrestle with God today? Where do you need to wrestle with God and, and, and have him change some labels over your life? Well, Jacob goes out to face his brother Esau and all Jacob can do is trust the Lord at this point. He's limping. He's had this incredible encounter. He knows God's with him and he trusts him. And I think he was shocked as well as anybody who was hearing this for the very first time, shocked to learn that Esau did not come out there to take his life. Esau met him out there to forgive him. It is one of the most shocking moments in the Old Testament. Are you willing to wrestle with God, admit who you are, and allow God to change you from the inside out? I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That's the wrestling that God wants to do with each and every one of you. There's labels, even we use them today. Sinner, lost, adulterer, manipulator, cheat, liar. And I think we've all worn those labels. But there's some new labels. Saved, sanctified, forgiven heaven-bound, redeemed. Which labels do you want? Only God can provide these new labels. I know what labels you really want. The ones that last forever in heaven. Let me pray for you. Lord, as always, we thank you for your holy word. I thank you for Genesis chapter 32. I thank you, Lord, for unpacking some not so flattering details about people so that we might learn something about you. And Lord, no, we're not impressed with Jacob, but you never abandoned him. And Lord, if we're being honest, we've done some things that I'm sure have not impressed you much either. But Lord, you never checked out on us and you don't. You're with us every step of the way. Even when our eyes have not been on you, your eyes have been on us. And Jacob's story reminds us of that truth. Lord, I pray for anybody in our family here today that is wrestling down some things with you. That Lord, I pray that you confront us and make us admit some things. I'm a sinner, I need you. I've been doing things my own way. When you ask us, what's your name? And we'd say, I'm lost without you, Lord. That's my name. 
And then Lord, we give you praise because now you wanna give us a new name. Christian, saved, redeemed. Lord, I pray that every one of us in this room would surrender completely to you, Lord, and become what the New Testament calls a new creation. A faith-filled life. Lord, that's our prayer. Lord, most importantly, we just thank you that you love the world so much that you sent your son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And whoever believes in you will not perish but have eternal life. Lord, we give you ultimate praise for your work of saving in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.